It's good to see you guys this morning. I'm so grateful uh, that you're here. I just want to thank you guys for kind of going through this sermon series with me over the past several weeks. We're going to wrap it up today. We're going to wrap up uh, this series uh, that we've called Becoming. And before we do that, I want us to just walk back through where we've been so far, talking about um, this journey of becoming who we are as a church, as First Baptist Lindale, week number one, we said that we grow as individual believers for the purpose of what? To serve. Yep. We grow in our faith so that we can serve one another, and through serving one another, the kingdom grows. So we grow to serve to grow, right? That was week number one. And then, and then we said in week two that there was unity in the diversity in the church and how God has shaped us all individually different. We're not all supposed to look the same, act the same, talk the same, serve the same. We're all different. Aren't you glad that everybody in the church doesn't serve and worship and look and talk and act exactly like you do? Yeah, okay, good. Uh, I might have gotten more amens if I'd said, aren't you glad everybody doesn't serve and look and act and talk like I do? (laughs) Then maybe more people would have given some amens there. Week number three, we said that the pursuit of greatness in the kingdom is very different than the pursuit of greatness in the world. That for Jesus and his church, the pursuit of greatness comes through servanthood, through being slaves to one another. As James and John found out as they um, asked Jesus about who can, who can sit on each side of you in the kingdom. And Jesus said, the one who serves. Week number four, we said that we can never think that we are above the master's example of service and love. Jesus is the example of service and love. He said, no servant is ever greater than his master. So we can never think that we somehow rise above the example of Jesus and the example of Jesus that he gave was that he got down on his hands and knees on a dirty floor and washed the nasty feet of his disciples. And we can never put ourselves above that example because he is the master and we are the servant. And then these past two weeks, we've looked at what Jesus said about our identity as the church, that we are salt in the earth in week five. And we said that our presence in the world, the church's presence in the world, should give people a thirst for Jesus. Amen? We should amplify the goodness of God. And we serve to preserve a sinful, broken planet until the coming of Jesus so that with each day God gives us, he can bring more people into the kingdom, that more people can hear and receive the gospel. And another part of that is that in week six, we said that Jesus called us the light of the world. And we can only be the light of the world because he is the light of the world and his presence dwells in us. And so when we let his light shine out of our life, he gets the glory and people are drawn into the kingdom. So today we are going to... Basically, I hope that God's word today is going to take everything that we've talked about over these past few weeks and just wrap it up for us and just bind it together. And there's a specific thing that God uses 
that he says will bind all of these things together. And we're going to find that out this morning. We're going to look in Colossians chapter 3 today. Colossians 3. And we're going to look at three verses there. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3. And this is what Paul writes to the church in verse 12. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. There's not a lot of explanation that has to be done when we read this text. You know, sometimes you read the Bible and it seems kind of deep and and you're not really exactly sure what it says and and it takes a little bit of study and preparation to to really dig out the meaning and say, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me? And then sometimes God just lays it out plainly and says, hey, I can't make it any easier to understand than this. And that's kind of what Paul does in this this passage. He makes it very plain to us. So I don't don't want us to so much focus on the whole um, that we have... To go through explanation in this text, what I want us to do is go through reflection as we read through this. I just want us to reflect on who we are. I want each one of us individually to reflect on how God is shaping us and and where we are in this journey that that Paul and this description that Paul is going to give us. So let's look first in verse 12. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved... Holy and dearly loved. Chosen by God. Holy, which means set apart for God's purpose and dearly loved. Folks, it's a miracle that the God of the universe even knows who you are. Right? I mean, that's a miracle. If we just stopped right there, that's miraculous. But it's a miracle in a miracle That the God of the universe not only knows who you are, but he says, you are dearly loved by me. That does nothing for you. Hello? I mean, gee, is this the 830 crowd here this morning? What is up with y'all? Not only does he know you, but he says, you are dearly loved. I have set you apart. And because of that, Paul says, because of who you are. You remember he said in these past two weeks, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He's speaking into our identity as the church. And here he says, you are chosen, you are holy, and you are dearly loved. So because of that, this is what you are to do. You are to put on these things that he's about to mention. And we put on those things because of who Christ says we are. So to put on, it literally means to envelop in, to put on clothes. It creates an image of getting dressed in the morning. When you get up and you, you, you got up this morning and put your clothes on, you had to put on whatever you put on to come to church this morning. It's the same 
imagery that Paul is using here to put on these things because of who you are. The inside, there are, th- there are things on the inside because of who we are that we bear on the outside. And so when Paul says, you, you take these things and put them on, these are the things that you bear on the outside because of who you are on the inside. Because Colossians 3 is all about when we're a new creation in Christ, that the old is gone, the new has come, that there, there are things that we set aside that we take off, and Paul says there are things that we put on. So what does it say that we clothe ourselves with? What do we put on? Number one, he says, compassion. You know what the opposite of compassion is? Indifference. Indifference is the opposite of compassion. It's not, um, it's not hostility. It's not anger. It's indifference. The fact that we find ourselves sometimes in a state where we just don't care that much. We should be a people clothed with compassion, with eyes that see the needs of people and hearts that are moved toward action. Doesn't it scare you sometimes how uncompassionate we can be sometimes? That we can see the needs of people around us and it doesn't affect us at all? Paul says we have to put on compassion. Jesus modeled compassion. There were so many times in the Gospels that he would see the needs in the hearts of people. And the scripture says he was moved to compassion. Sometimes even to tears that he would weep over the state of the hearts of people. We have to be clothed with that same compassion. We have to not only see the need but have a heart that wants to meet that need. The second thing is kindness. And kindness and compassion are very similar. Kindness is that grace that God puts in us that mellows the harshness that sometimes wants to come out of us in response to people. Sometimes we can be so harsh. And Jesus uses the same word in a, in, in a different passage of Scripture in Matthew 11. Jesus says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When Jesus says there, my yoke is easy, he uses the same word that Paul uses for kindness. And the scriptures say that it's the kindness of Jesus that draws people to the gospel. Folks, we have to... As a church, as, as believers, we have to understand kindness and we have to embrace kindness because we're not, um, I'll tell you all, some of the most unkind people I've ever met in my life have been Christians. It's just true. So unkind, so uncompassionate. And sometimes the, the prophet in us comes out and we get, and we get so wrapped up in making sure that we stand up for the truth that we, that we completely forget the kindness of Jesus. <laughs> and it's for that reason people leave the church and don't want to come back. We can't attack people with the gospel and expect them to respond to it. Number three is humility, which is also something that we stand 
to learn a lot about. And we've talked about humility a lot. And do you realize that in Greek culture, like in the day of Jesus, when that word humility was spoken, prior to Jesus, it was always used in a negative connotation. Because in culture, humility, I mean, when we hear the word humiliation, that's not a word that makes us feel good. And it was, uh, humility was always something that was used in a negative context. But when Jesus came along, he flipped it. And he began to, to make humility not, not something that was negative, but something that became a virtue in the lives of people. Jesus in Christianity began to elevate humility. Humility is the opposite of self-love. And everything that Jesus did was clothed in humility. And, and if we ever have trouble being humble, I think it would be real easy for us to... It's easy for me sometimes to get myself in check by thinking of this. If Jesus clothed himself in humility and everything that he did, he was the one person that ever walked the planet that didn't have to be humble. I mean, he's the king of the universe. When Jesus says he was the greatest, he was right. If, he had said, when he, if Jesus had said he was the best, he's right. If he ever said he was the biggest, he's right. If he ever said there's nobody better than me, he's right. So that's not a lack of humility. That's not arrogance on Jesus' part because when Jesus says it, it's true. But when I say it, it's so not true. And when you say it, it's not true. So if Jesus, who was the one person who who could say that he was the greatest and the biggest and the best and be correct, but yet still he chose to take up humility in everything that he did, then who are we to think that we can't do the same or that we shouldn't do the same? We have to be clothed in humility and then gentleness. Gentleness is very much tied to humility. If we understand humility, gentleness won't be difficult for us because gentleness comes from the realization of knowing that you are a sinner dealing with other sinners. When somebody offends us, when somebody makes us angry, does something that we don't like, hurts us, gentleness is that ability to be able to look at them the same way that you know you are, to know that They're a sinner just like me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner dealing with sinners. And gentleness isn't weakness. Gentleness isn't so much a weakness as it is a willingness. Gentleness is a willingness. A willingness to do what? Gentleness is actually a willingness to suffer. Suffer, injure yourself rather than dish it out on somebody else. You know what gentleness says? It's okay if I hurt a little bit. Gentleness says, I don't always have to defend myself. Because gentleness knows that the sin in your life against God causes way more pain than somebody else's sin against you. You understand the pain 
that your own life and your own sinfulness causes the heart of God. And so because of that, it's easy for you to be gentle with other people when their sin hurts you. And then there's patience. (laughs) That's not one we like talking about, is it? And this is not the kind of patience like I've been in the crystal drive-thru for 30 minutes and still don't have my food. (laughs) That's not the patience that we're talking about. Even though, you know, has anybody ever gotten their food fast at Crystal? Ever? I don't, I don't know. No offense if you work at Crystal or for Crystal, please. Uh, it's just true, y'all. But this has to do, this is patience that has to do with the way that we treat one another. Um, that your foolishness, your incorrectness, your ill treatment of me doesn't cause me to write you off. Patience says, I know you hurt me. I know you've done things against me. But that doesn't cause me to write you off. Patience, in this case, is actually the opposite of resentment and revenge. Resentment and revenge is kind of our go-to sometimes. when it's, it's the flesh. When people hurt us, we want to get back at them or we want to hold everything against them. And patience says, you know, I'm, I'm just, I can't do that. Because Paul reminds us in 2 Peter 3.15, listen to what he says. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. We would never be saved were it not for the patience of God. (laughs) How patient does God have to be with you? (laughs) Just think about that for a minute. Exceedingly. How patient did he have to be for you to finally come to the realization that you needed forgiveness and grace and that you needed to respond to the gospel How patient has he been? How patient does he continue to be with us in our growth and our foolishness toward him? But yet he doesn't seek revenge or resentment. And he doesn't write us off. Patience is just not writing somebody off. So there's five characteristics here. and, And he says all of these are a part of the wardrobe of a believer. They're all pieces of the, of the clothes that we wear, the outer garment that we put on that represents what the Holy Spirit that lives in our heart. So we have all of these things on, but then he's, there's one more. There's a sixth piece to that. Look at verse 13. Actually, the, the sixth piece is in verse 14, but let's look at verse 13 first. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So he says these five things are like the garments that we put on. And once, once you put on all of these things, what do you look like? He says verse 13 is what you look like when we have all of the things on. What's the result of that? When we take on compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, and and patience, 
and they show themselves to be present in our lives and in the church, they come out in two ways. One, we bear with one another. Again, that word means endurance. That we don't write each other off. We don't give up on each other. It says that you bear with one another and you forgive one another. You show graciousness. We have to show grace and forgiveness to one another. And then Paul adds at the very end of that verse, he drops the bomb. He says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. He didn't say, you forgive people as people forgive you. Which is usually what we do. We, we base our ability or our desire or our act of forgiveness on what we see in people around us. And Paul says that's not how, that's not your, your standard. That's not where you measure forgiveness. You measure your forgiveness up against the forgiveness of God in your life. So if he says, forgive as the Lord forgave you, think about for a minute, how, did, how has God forgiven you? How has he forgiven me? Has he forgiven us because we deserve it? Have you ever been upset with somebody and you're like, you know what, they don't deserve my forgiveness. Well, did you ever deserve God's? No, he doesn't forgive us because we deserve it. Does he forgive us because we've done something to make it up to him? That we've like leveled things out? That we've made things right on our own? No. Sometimes we withhold forgiveness from people because we expect certain things from them. Well, until they do this, I'm not going to forgive them. Until they say this to me, I'm not going to forgive them. Until I see that they really mean it. And we withhold all those things. Let me ask you this question. Aren't you glad? Aren't you grateful that Jesus died on the cross for you before you even knew you needed to be forgiven? Jesus didn't wait for you to understand how much you needed to be forgiven before he went to the cross. He just did it. With the desire that you would come to understand exactly what he had done for you. So that's not how he forgives. Does he stop forgiving us when we've hit our limit with him? Do we get to the point where we keep committing the same sin in our life over and over and over and God says, you know what, I'm done with you. Like, you just don't get it. Over and over and over, you keep doing the same thing, and, and you still don't get it, so I'm done with you. No. Amen. Thank the Lord he doesn't forgive us that way. But we have a temptation, we have a tendency to want to do that with people, with each other. What did When the disciples came to Jesus and asked him that very question, they said, Jesus, when somebody keeps sinning against us over and over and over and keep doing the same thing, how many times are we supposed to forgive them? Is seven times enough? Seven times seems like enough. Like that's, You would think after seven times they would get it. Isn't that okay? And Jesus goes, no. Stop counting. Just quit counting. When Jesus said 70 times 7, I hope that everybody realizes that Jesus didn't mean count to 490. 
And then, after they do it 491, then you can write them off. That's not what he meant. He used such a large number to say, look, just stop counting. Even if you did decide, I'm going to count how many times this person sins against me. I'm going to keep track of it. You try to keep track of it till you get to 490, and let's see how that goes. You're going to forget. You're not going to be able to count that high. You're not going to, you know what, because, because by the time you get to 490 with somebody else, you're going to realize how your count to everybody else is like a million. You're going to realize that while you've been counting, trying to count how many times this person sinned against you, that you've sinned against everybody else like a million times. Jesus says, just stop counting. That's not how I forgive you. And you also realize that in that context, that's not a suggestion. Some translations even say, you must forgive as the Lord forgave you. Paul doesn't say, well, it'd be really great if you could muster up the, the goodness in your heart to forgive people this way. He said, no. No, this is, this is what's required of you as a child of God. You must forgive as Jesus forgave you. We don't have any other options. So then because of these virtues, it comes out in our life in this church family that we don't give up on each other and we forgive one another when we mess up. I sure hope you'll forgive me when I mess up. I'll just be real honest with you because, y'all, I'm going to mess up a lot. I already have. (laughs) And some of you may even be here this morning and you're thinking of things right now that you could be mad at me about. That maybe I don't even know I've done. But But I've done them. And I hope that you'll forgive me. Because I have and will and will continue to mess up. And I'll make you a promise that if, that as your pastor, I'm going to try really hard to model this in my relationships with you too. I want to I do this for you. I want to be the example for you. It's not always easy, I know. I know it's not. But it's just what we have to do. So once all these things are, are brought together and they come out and, and we begin to, to bear with one another and not give up on each other and forgive one another freely when we, when we mess up, then we get to verse 14. And, 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 G, and Paul says there's one thing that wraps everything together. Verse 14 says, And then over all these virtues, like these are pretty important virtues. These are pretty, these are pretty big deal. But over all of these things, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let me tell you what Paul is saying here. That above all of these things that I've talked about, the greatest thing that that binds everything together is love. 
How can you forgive without love? How can you be compassionate without love? How can you be humble before one another without love? It's the thread that runs through the quilt that holds all the pieces together. And you remember in verse 12, Paul says to clothe ourselves with these things. And he uses this illustration of of putting on clothes. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, right? And And he talks about them like they're articles of clothing. If you think about who he's talking to and about the way people dressed back then... Um, the typical Israelite man in the first century had a pretty basic wardrobe. Now, depending on what class you were in, how much money you had, you, there may be more things or, or less things, but there was sort of a basic wardrobe for a guy back in those days. Um, it started with a, a shirt that was like, um, it's kind of a, the, the, the first layer of garment. It was like a long shirt. And then on top of that, they wore what was called a tunic on top of that layer. And then there was a belt or a sash that after those first two layers, they would take this belt and sash and wrap it around their waist several times. And that's what held everything together. And then there was the outer garment, like the cloak that they would put on. And then there was sometimes a headdress. You would notice how some guys... Or in movies and pictures and stuff. They would have like a hood that would come over. Well that was another piece. So they would have that sometimes to cover their head. And then there were their, their sandals. And so when Paul says. Above all these put on love. Which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's like all of these characteristics are like you're getting dressed with all these things and love the the sash the belt that they wore was like the most important part of what they what they put on because it wrapped around them and it held all of the other things in place because if you walk you're walking around without a sash or a belt to keep all that stuff tied then it wasn't going to go well that was, that was the, the, the main important piece. And so Paul says that, like the sash and the belt that you put on, that, that finishes everything that, when you get dressed in the morning, that's, that's love. That's the greatest thing, the most important thing that you put on. So, so if there's, there's that first shirt, like undergarment shirt, and then there's the tunic that goes on top of that, and then there's the... Um, there's the, the sash, the belt that wraps around, and then there was the outer garment, and then there was the head, the head covering, and then there was the sandals. So those are like six garments that were pretty much standard wardrobe. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience and above all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity I don't think that was coincidence 
that Paul takes each one of those garments and gives them an identity and a characteristic and says, once you get dressed, you finish putting on all these things, all of it's bound together with love. Just love. Love each other. Love each other with actions, not just with words. All the other virtues are empty without love. And so if we want to be the church that, that Jesus wants us to be, in the world, in the country, in the state, in, in Lindale, Silver Creek, in this community, love is essential. Look at what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know how this community is going to know that we're for real and that we're not fake? You, you realize some people think we're fake. Like that's what they believe about us. You think, no, they really don't think that. Yeah, some people do think that. Jesus says, if people are going to really know that you're mine, if they're going to really know that you're legit, you know how they're going to know? It's not because we have billboards and we... And the preacher talks on the radio on Friday nights during football games. And they're like, that kind of stuff doesn't matter. He says, they'll know that you're mine by the way you love each other. The way you love the person sitting next to you. The way you love that person on the other side of this room from you. The way you love babies in the nursery. The way you love kids. The way you love your Sunday school class. And if you can figure that out, people will notice. People will see it. And if we start doing that, and then if we start loving each other outside of these four walls, then people start taking notice. And they say, you know what? They don't just talk about love. Like, they love. They love each other. And then they become hungry for that love. And they become thirsty for that. And then when they come in here... I hope that if you're a visitor with us, even this morning, that you feel like you're a part of this family because we're not doing what we're supposed to if you don't. I hope you feel loved when you come into this place. And all of us who have been here a long time, we should be constantly evaluating how loved am I making people feel when I'm here. Love binds everything that we do together as a church. Every, all the stuff that we do is just stuff if it's not wrapped up and bound up in love for one another. That's how we love. That's how we grow.